right, good day, ladies and gentlemen, Christian Israelites the world over. Pastor Eli James here. This is October 13, 2019. Welcome to Eurofolk Radio, and this is the Bloodlines Show. Boy, I miss Pastor Steve. <laughs> we used to have so many good discussions on the Bloodline theme, and there's uh, no end to the Bloodline concept also known as covenant theology, the proper interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. And uh, I'm going to do part six of the Enmity series. I left off part five actually uh, three or four weeks ago because I've been traveling a lot. And we just had the Feast of Tabernacles in Arkansas last weekend, which was uh, very, very good. In fact, it was outstanding. And I'll get into that a little bit uh, before we continue with the Enmity series. I just want to announce that uh, Anglo-SaxonIsrael.com is being rebuilt. Actually, so is uh, so is Eurofolk Radio. And uh, at Eurofolk Radio, we're going to be focusing more on two seed line teaching, the overnight uh, spots that have been uh, con- continued with music, as you probably heard before today's show, if you were listening, those are all going to be filled in with two seed line identity teaching from the likes of Swift and Compare and and then also non-seed line identity teaching because Sheldon Emery was a great teacher too. And so was Arnold Kennedy. And uh, so we'll be featuring those types of uh, broadcasts instead of music because uh, even though the overnight content, most of people in America are asleep at that time, the rest of the world is awake, okay, uh, especially in Australia and uh, Europe, etc. And we all also get people listening in China and uh, Japan, etc. So uh, it's good to have this type of programming 24/7. And so I'm in the uh, I'm in the business right now of filling all those time slots with that type of programming. So, and it's uh, it's work. It's new for me. Uh, actually, Pastor Steve did some of that. Paul English has been doing that. But right now it has devolved upon me and Brother Abair, who is uh, filling in show slots as well. So right now it's a two-man job. It's me and Brother Abair doing uh, all of the detail work that goes on behind the scenes to bring you the programming here at Eurofolk Radio. So thanks for listening. Also, I want to encourage uh, the listeners to, uh, you know, if you want to get in touch with me, have any questions about the show content, etc., my email address is elijames at att.net, elijames at att.net. And if you would like to donate to our efforts here, uh, we're probably the only uh, regular radio station, at least on the Internet, that has constant uh, Christian identity programming. And we're going to try to do it 24-7 with pre-recorded shows. And thank you, Michael, in Spain for preserving all of my talk show shows, which has to be about 10 years' worth of material. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't thank you enough. I thought that material was totally lost and gone forever. But he was actually downloading all of those shows and has saved uh, tons of material, and he has uh, sent me uh, in uh, in a format. Uh, anyway, uh, 
a, uh, a concise format that now I have downloaded onto my computer and I have all those shows which I thought were lost and gone forever. So those are being uploaded onto the overnight time slot and other time slots as well. We also will be having uh, Paul from uh, ha- having his show. We're, we're setting that up uh, by next Saturday. I'm not sure which time slot he wants, but next Saturday we'll have a show by Paul from the Paul from show, and uh, he will be talking about the uh, you know the corruption of Canada by Juno Who, and uh, he's very good on that topic. So looking forward to having him join the cast here. So and if you'd care to donate to Your Folk Radio, the best way to do it is by mail because we no longer have a, a PayPal account and we're unable to establish. A, uh, an account, a commercial account where credit cards can be used. The, uh, you know, the powers that be, namely the international Jew, has seen to it that we cannot operate in their mystery Babylon format. So the only thing left is mail. And so if you care to send a check or money order, uh, make it out to ANP, which stands for American National Publishing, and uh, the address is P.O. Box 41-1373, Chicago, Illinois, 60647. And thank you, Frank, in Texas for your recent donation. Uh, much appreciated. And also to Daryl for his recent donation when we were at the Feast of Tabernacles. Wow, what a feast. It was a wonderful feast. So let me just go into it because... Uh, if you do not have never attended a you know a, a Christian Israel feast, and we are actually commanded to do so, uh, we're supposed to do it in a commemorative fashion. It does uh, it doesn't mean that we have to, for example, in Feast of Tabernacles, you know, go out uh, to some uh, hidden location in Arizona. Uh, and do it outside. We're supposed to do it outside, and to the extent that you can, if you can put up a little pup tent in your backyard, stay outside for the duration. And uh, the point of this is to get get yourself ready for the second coming, when he tabernacles with us. And we know that all the prophecies suggest that the world is going to uh, collapse. And there will be very little, very little, uh, okay, people are saying they lost sound. Let me double check my uh, broadcaster. Uh, No, the broadcaster is uh, doing well, so we've got to be broadcasting. So for those of you who have lost sound, uh, refresh. Hit the little refresh uh, circle in the upper left-hand corner of your screen. So uh, let me just go over Last Saturday was the major day for presentations. We had sent up, set up a tent and teaching area and a cooking area. And uh, thanks to Big Jim for hosting the event, Big Jim in Arkansas. Much appreciated. And uh, you know we're, we're setting up a, a regular meeting place for the covenant people, for the covenant people in Arkansas and in Missouri. And we're trying to do that. We also have a regular meeting place in Kentucky. We're trying to set up a place in Indiana. I mean, sorry, Illinois. 
we actually do have a place in Indiana as well. So the entire Midwest is shaping up to have bona fide, regular meeting places for the covenant people. And this is really encouraging. Now, before I get into uh, uh, today's topic, which is Enmity Part 6, let me just uh, talk a little bit about the, the presentations at the Feast of Tabernacles in Arkansas last weekend. So uh, David and Marie did a presentation about natural health and, of course, the uh, horrible ways in which the Rothschilds and Monsanto and, and other perfidious ones are manipulating our food, making it poisonous and destroying our health. And so they gave an excellent presentation on how to overcome this uh, assault on our physical health and uh, including uh, using essential oils and uh, changing your diet and going to an all-natural diet, including uh, doing more raw foods for the enzymes, etc., etc. And that was very well received. The, the audience was very much engaged in asking questions, etc., etc. So well done, David and Marie. Then David went on to do a presentation about the word Gentiles and how the word Gentiles is a bad word that uh, is assumed by the world. And by the way, Brother Abair has done, a, I think, a 14-part series on this sh- subject, showing that in the vast majority of cases, the word Gentile actually refers to Israelites and not to non-Israelites. And then uh, David did the same thing, but his method, David's technique, was to cross-reference every instance of the word Gentile in the New Testament and show that whenever, for example, Paul cites a Old Testament verse and the word Gentile is in the New Testament, if you cross-reference it, you find out that the verse in the Old Testament is about Israel, not about non-Israelites. And so he has discovered that out of the 400 or so instances of the word Gentile in the New Testament, only four, only four can be a reference to non-Israelites. The rest are all Israel, which shows that the word Gentiles, as defined today, meaning non-Israelites, is false. It's absolutely false. It's a false teaching created by the Jews, and the Jews taught it to the Judeo-Christians who teach it in the Christian pulpits. It's a lie, folks. It's a big, fat lie, a big, fat Jewish lie. And so that was uh, very well done. And then Barbara Ann uh, did a, a presentation about her upcoming book, which I have titled 1,000 Years Together. <laughs> I, I meant to call her and, and tell her, hey, this is the, be a perfect title for your book. You know, a play on 100 Years Together by Solzhenitsyn, because that book is about how the Jews took over Russia and exterminated 66 million Russians. And this is Jewish genocide against the white race, folks. Well, Barbara's book is about the 1,000-year period during which the Jews ruled Poland. And so... And genocided the Poles and got them hooked on vodka and other alcoholic uh, compounds, etc., and enslaved the Polish people for a thousand years. 
So that's what her book is about, and she gave a, a brief uh, presentation on that, and that was very well received as well. Then it was my turn, and I did a, a study of the coveted people message, a little bit about the two bloodlines, which we're going to talk about today, and uh, the the descent of the Jewish people from the Kenites down, and I talk, I'll be talking about that very specifically today on part six of the Enmity series. So that was all very well received. Again, the, the entire event, which lasted from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., was uh, very lively with everybody contributing. We had three people from Texas and a lot of people from uh, Missouri and Arkansas, of course. So uh, although a lot of people, about 15 people had to uh, cancel, so we're hoping that next year they can make it and uh, and we have an even bigger crowd. We should have about 30 to 40 people next year. So uh, thanks for all attending, and thanks again to Big Jim for hosting the event. It was wonderful, outstanding even. And uh, the, the weather was great until after dinner on, on Saturday. The rains came, and, <coughs> excuse me, and it rained for 36 hours straight. So we weren't able to do much outside because of that. However, the next day uh, we joined Pastor Ramsey uh, for his regularly scheduled event in Arkansas, and he asked me to do a, a brief presentation on why we uh, actually still commemorate the Hebrew feast days, especially the fall feast days. And for those of you who are not aware, I'll just go through it briefly now, that the feast day calendar uh, is not just a, a ritual that uh, you know, we go through every weekend because the Bible says uh, we're supposed to. It tells us to commemorate these feasts. There is a much uh, more significant aspect to this, and that is the fact that these feast day, the whole feast day calendar is prophetic. The spring feasts are, are related to the feast of Passover, and the coming of Messiah at the first advent. So for 1,200 years, the Levitical priests practiced all these rituals, including all the blood sacrifices and the donations, also called oblations, to the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. But when Messiah finally came, all those rituals came to an end, the blood sacrifices came to an end, and the first advent where uh, Yahshua sacrificed himself at Calvary for us and all our past sins were forgiven. And that's what was nailed to the cross. It was the list of sins, not the law. The law was not nailed to the cross. The churches have that all wrong. So just as the spring feasts were fulfilled in the time period prophesied, namely Passover, Passover Sabbath, and Wave Sheaf Day, Wave Sheaf represents the risen Christ, Okay, so he fulfilled all of that in one season. In one season, in fact, three days, three days in a row. And then Pentecost came 49 days later, which was also fulfilled in 33 AD. But it speaks of the giving of the Holy Spirit to the holy people, namely the covenant people, Caucasian Israel. And that represents the 2,000-year gap between First Advent and Second Advent. Second Advent is the fall feasts, 
the fall feast, feast of trumpets, feast of trumpets announces the coming of the Messiah for the second time. So it announces the feast of tabernacles, actually. Then the day of atonement is the day which that's our, our last chance to repent before the second coming. This is why we repeat the why we commemorate these feasts every year. And because one of these years is going to be the last one. Just like 33 AD was the last the last real feast of Passover. Of course, Passover is changed to uh, Last Supper. We, we commemorate the Passover with the Last Supper. We don't sacrifice lambs anymore. So, the, and then finally the Feast of Tabernacles, of which the last great day is when Jesus returns and tabernacles with us. So, we commemorate these feast days in anticipation of the prophetic fulfillment of the fall feast days, and we're getting closer and closer to that event. So, in other words... uh, In the coming year, the fall feasts will be literally fulfilled. The expectation of the fulfillment and the reason why Feast of Tabernacles and the fall feasts were being performed by the Israelites for down through the centuries, now 3,500 years for us, is because we anticipate the second coming, the judgment of the world, and the wedding feast of the Lamb, and the coming of the kingdom. That's what it's all about. Okay, so this is to remind ourselves of who we are, why we're here, and what we anticipate will happen to us. And as Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. Mortality must take on immortality, and corruption must take on incorruption. So that's why we celebrate these feast days. So if you ever want to join us for one, contact me by email. Again, it's elijames at att.net. And uh, I will make arrangements for you to join us. All right. So thanks for, uh, for everybody who participated in this last Feast of Tabernacle. It's really wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. All right. So let's get into it. Let's get into the uh, enmity part six. Now, enmity part five was uh, several weeks ago, actually, it was uh, while I was uh, at the Indiana congregation, and several people had mentioned to me after the show that it was probably the best show I've ever done. (laughs) So it's up in the archives. I actually quoted a lot of stuff from Arnold Kennedy during that show. And it, it explains how the two seed lines and the separate genealogies, the separate bloodlines, came from Genesis 3, Genesis 3 and 4, in great detail, absolutely great detail, and uh, explains how Genesis chapter 1 were, are the bara creation, namely Yahweh created the, the species in Genesis chapter 1, but formed Yatsar, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 2. So he selected two individuals from the white race and did something special to them, May, uh, changed their DNA, no less, so that it would accept the Holy Spirit, the spirit that was breathed into Adam in Genesis 2, verse 7, and then, of course, shared by Eve when, because she's his sidekick. The, the script doesn't say rib. It says side. 
she is the female side of the male side of Adam. They work together. They are a, a, a uh, they were made for each other is what I'm trying to say. And that's what the verse is. But it's DNA. It's bloodline. This is bloodline stuff. So I explained all that in Enmity Part 5. And so I really encourage you to go into the archives, go to your folk radio, and click on the tab that says Show Downloads and scroll down to Bloodlines, and then you can click on Enmity Part 5. In fact, uh, I just uh, re-listened to it a few minutes before the show, and uh, I would say, yeah, it was a really good show because the explanation of the two bloodlines and our genealogy from Genesis 1 through 5 is probably the most concise work I've ever done on that subject. So, in fact, I adjure you. Adjure you means command. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. If you missed it when it was done live, go back into the archives and listen to it because it is really a concise summary of Genesis 1 through 5. You won't get this anywhere else in the world except right here on Eurofolk Radio. Okay, so let's continue. We, in fact, uh, last night, I did a show about the Hindu understanding of Adam and Eve. And I quoted from a Hindu professor who, who actually, well, actually, I think he was actually Muslim, a Muslim living in India, who talked about the fact that the history of Adam and Eve had been erased from the Hindu scriptures, which are just borrowed from other writings, uh, had erased, been erased from the Rig Veda by later uh, authors, by later uh, theologians you know, of either Hindu or, or Muslim uh, you know, theology. So this was a revelation to me that uh, they deliberately tried to erase the history of Adam and Eve, and we have taught on previous occasions, and this was on last night's Restoration Hour, that the Sethites had uh, occupied India, Iran, Iraq, uh, all of those territories east of the Mesopotamia since the days of Adam. And they were not killed in the flood. They survived the flood, as did just about every species on the planet, because the flood was local. It was local to either the Terran Basin or or Turkey, as we know Turkey today, uh, or a combination of the two. It could be that the flood waters rose there and washed down. They definitely emptied out uh, across Turkey down the uh, Mesopotamian territory because we have evidence of freshwater silt deposited very suddenly that's like 20 feet thick in some places. So definitely the, the water flood waters washed down in that direction. And, uh, and then Noah's Ark settled on, on Mount Ararat, or the, the high hills, the high hills of Ararat. So uh, he confirmed that all this information is contained in the, not I don't want to call it the Hindu scriptures, but in the Indo-Aryan scriptures. That's what those are, the Rig Veda, the, uh, the various... Uh, mystical and metaphysical texts that have come down to us from India, those were composed by Aryans. 
That's Indo-Aryan literature. It's not Hindu literature. Hinduism didn't come along until around 300 BC. And it just incorporated all of the Buddhist, Aryan, and other literature that was around and, and conglomerated into what's called Hinduism. And they worship all the gods that were ever worshipped in the ancient world. They commemorate all of that stuff. So Hinduism is not the original religion of the territory. Indo-Aryanism is the religion of the territory. And uh, that's the show I did last night on Restoration Hour. By the way, I haven't loaded that up yet, so I'll do that right after today's show on Bloodlines here. So let's continue now. I'm going to go into uh, Enmity Series Part 1, which I, uh, let's see, I should put that in the chat room if I haven't done already. Okay, Control-C, and into the chat room. And for those of you who want to follow along, you can go to the Wayback Machine because we're also rebuilding Anglo-SaxonIsrael.com. But you can go to the Wayback Machine and pick one of the archives at the Wayback Machine. You type in www.Anglo-SaxonIsrael.com and hit enter. And my website will come up, a live website, searchable and everything. And just uh, type in Enmity or scroll down on the right-hand side. You'll see the Enmity series with a plus sign because it consists of six parts. And those six parts will pop up. And click on Enmity series part one, which we're going to talk about right now. So the last part that we did was Enmity Part 5 on this radio series, and we left off giving the bloodlines in Genesis chapter 4, the bloodline of the Kenites, namely the Nahash people, where Eve was seduced by a fallen angel and bore Cain. And Cain was kicked out and moved east into the land of wandering. And, of course, the Jews have been wanderers ever since. Okay, so the bloodline from Lucifer, although it was not necessarily Lucifer himself, but one of his Nephilim critters that took on human form. And one of these, according to Enoch, is Gadrel. And it says very straightforwardly in the book of Enoch that Gadrel seduced Eve. So that's the Nachash critter in Genesis chapter 3. So from Nachash and Eve, we get Cain. Cain, the Kenite people, survived the flood and they merged with the Canaanites of Ham, of Hamitic descent. Now, what was going on? Well, Ham lay with his mother and produced Canaan. This is why Canaan was cursed by Noah, because he was the product of incest. So we have the Canaanites now added to the bloodline of Cain, the Kenites, and they are henceforth called, referred to as Canaanites. Later on, Jacob and Esau had their battles 
Esau became a race mixer when he married into the Canaanite line of the Hittites. Esau henceforth became the patriarch of the Canaanites, and they're henceforth referred to as Edomites, because Esau is Edom. The Edomites stayed around to harass the Israelites, especially the house of Judah, until John Hyrcanus issued a decree to forcibly circumcise the Edomites and bring them into the nation of Judea can no longer be called the nation of Judah because that's forbidden. Yahweh forbids racial mixing. And so when John Hyrcanus did this for military and political reasons, he violated Yahweh's law and he incorporated the Edomites into the nation of Judea, which means he made it a multicultural state and Israel had never been a multicultural state throughout its entire history until this point in time. From these Edomites came the Pharisees. The Edomites took over the Pharisaic priesthood and also the Levitical priesthood to some extent because they became the high priests. They were the political appointees of the Romans, but they were not Judahites. They were Edomites. And this is, we've done multitudinous numbers of shows. Pastor Steve and I, did a whole series on the Edomite kings or puppets of the Romans that ruled over the house of Judah up until the days that Yahshua walked the earth. So all of this history is fully documented in Josephus, in the Apocrypha, especially the intertestamental period, as well as the Dead Sea Scrolls. All of this is fully documented, but nobody teaches it except those of us in identity both two-seed line and non-seed line. And so from the Pharisees, we get the modern Jews. So we're going to now talk about the genealogy, these genealogies that I just described. So I'm on page 13 of the Enmity Part 1 at anglo-saxonisrael.com. And I'm going to pick it up uh, at the very top of page 13. Another erroneous conjecture about Scripture is that all of the people of the world drowned in Noah's flood, and that, therefore, all of the human races come from Noah's three sons. Okay, this is, this is what the Jews and the Judeo-Christians teach. The Hebrew word Eretz can be translated either as earth or land, and these words are rarely used to denote the entire earth. In strong concordance, the word erects, number 776, has the following meanings. Country, earth, field, land, ground, wilderness, world. The last entry of any dictionary definition is usually the least common meaning. Also, Genesis 4.14 tells us, quoting, from the, uh, quoting Cain, that, quote, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. So we're, we're seeing here Cain actually issuing a prophecy that he and his descendants would be vagabonds and fugitives. 
that pertains to the Jews, folks. The Jews are those vagabonds and fugitives, and they still are even today. They're not, they're not holding on to the, the, the nation of Palestine. If it weren't for all the donations and the forced contributions made by the Zionists upon Germany, and also John Hagee and their ilk demanding contributions to the Israeli state, etc., the Israeli state would fall apart. They're still vagabonds, they're still fugitives, and that territory does not belong to them because they are not Israel. They are Canaanites, Canaanites, Ashkenazi, which means Mongol, mixed Mongol and Hittite blood. This is obvious what's going on, and this great impersonation by the Jews of Israel is what is deceiving the entire planet. Revelation 12, uh, 12, 16, I believe it is, that this is what the the delusion that the entire world is under that the Jews are actually God's chosen people. This is it. This is the great deception. So here again, Cain using the word Eretz from the face of the Eretz, obviously he was not driven off the planet. Given the human penchant for exaggeration, the translators of the KJV probably indulged here somewhat or a lot, <laughs> not just somewhat, a lot. So since Cain was not driven off the planet, he was simply driven away from a particular territory, a particular land, it's, it's quite a jump to insist that the whole earth was uh, destroyed by a flood. The, the language does not justify that. So the two most reasonable readings are that, one, the flood was a major one, but confined to the Tarim Basin, there or, and, and, and or territory south of there, and east of there, because uh, Turkey is southeast of there. There, the rains were mightily supplemented by an upwelling of water from underground due to earthquakes. And it tells us there that the, the water came from underground as well. See Dr. Whistley Swift's analysis entitled The Races and the Flood, a taped lecture available from the New Christian Crusade Church. Now, uh, I'm not sure that the New Christian Crusade exists anymore. I'm having trouble contacting them. And the only person I know of uh, who was working there was Monica. She, she has moved back. She's actually a South African who moved to Louisiana to help uh, James Warner run that organization. She was a secretary for quite some time. I did meet her in Louisiana one, on one occasion, and but she has since moved back to South Africa. So uh, I will try to get a hold of her and find out what's up with that organization, the New Christian Crusade Church. Uh, the P.O. Box is 426 Metairie, Louisiana, 70004. So uh, I should try sending a letter there to see if they're still around. Anyway, number two, the flood was worldwide, but was most severe where these Adamites lived. Okay, so both of these propositions are more likely 
than the worldwide global flood where they teach the you know, the, the flood waters reach the top of Mount Everest and eight miles high, <laughs> right? And and then where did all that water go? Is the question that we we need to have answered. Certainly not all the world's birds, nor the species of beasts of Africa, Australia, America, and others unknown to Noah were passengers on the ark. If all the known species were on the ark, their migration from the ark's landing site would have to be traceable and proven. Bones of kangaroos would have to be found in the Middle East if all the world's animals were represented and resided on the ark. What did these kangaroos do? Did they hop all the way back to Australia? Did no kangaroos could walk on water as, as soon as they got off the ark? Add to this fact the additional fact that Noah housed two of each species on the ark. We're looking at a ship that would have to carry millions, millions of animals, plus many months of food for them. The difficulties of maintaining this dubious thesis are incredible. We can only conclude that when Genesis 6 speaks of all flesh that have the breath of life being destroyed in the earth land, that territory, it is speaking of a particular region of the globe, but not the entire globe. That portion is most certainly and most specifically the area inhabited by the Adamites at that time because they had uh, begun mixing their blood with the fallen ones Yahweh, and that's where Mount uh, Hermon, Mount Hermon is where they actually descended in Genesis chapter 6. And so Yahweh had to eliminate as many of these people as, as possible. But the book of Jasher tells us that many of these people actually escaped to high ground and survived the flood. And that is how we find the Canaanites and the giants in Canaan land when Yahweh ordered the Israelites to exterminate them because they survived the flood, folks. That's why they were there. And so did the Indo-Aryans. They survived the flood, too. The Epic of Gilgamesh is Indo-Aryan literature. So, Genesis 6-9 also tells us that Noah was perfect in his generations. The word generations is translated from toledah, meaning descent. He was perfect in his descent. There was no admixture of non-Adamite blood in either him or his children or his wife, Naama. It turns out uh, the name Naama does not exist in the Bible, but in the apocryphal literature, she is named as Naama. It turns out that this name is very common in the ancient world. And apparently Nimrod also married a woman by the name of Naama, or Naama was his mother, but that was a Canaanite woman who uh, married either uh, Nimrod's father or Nimrod, and she is known as Semiramis in the historical literature. And she's the one depicted with a uh, babe in arms, that that, uh, that image existed thousands of years before Mary and Jesus were depicted. And the hot cross buns are uh, a symbol of the sun. <laughs> okay, so this is uh, idolatrous 
imagery going way back to Nimrod, and the Catholic Church has preserved all this idolatry for us in the, in the religion called Catholicism, which is a universalistic religion. It's not a covenant religion, absolutely no covenant theology in Catholicism at all. So, so the, the whole story of the flood being global and that all species resided on the ark is pure nonsense. A brother Abair asks, how the heck can an olive tree live underwater for a year? It can't. So the, it tells us how high, that's a good indication as to how high the floodwaters rose because the, those olive trees did not die. Yeah, as a... Uh, is in the fields of Illinois because we had so much rain this year in Illinois. The fields are flooded, and the the fields that were flooded did not produce any grain. So you can see very clearly that a flooding, even a minor flooding like that, will destroy, you know, wheat, barley, oats, and if long enough, will kill. If the trees don't get any air or sunlight. If they're all underwater, totally underwater, they will not survive. So yet this olive tree did survive. Okay, so his generations were perfect, that is, unmixed. He was perfect in his descent. Hence, Noah was pure white. But the people of the area who were being judged were being judged for the sin of race mixing, begetting evil seed and practicing their abominable religions. Yahweh's purpose in sending the flood was to eliminate the race mixers. In other episodes, we shall see that the planet Earth had already been previously judged for this crime, and Earth will be judged again for the same crime, because Yahshua says it shall be as in the days of Noah. Here we are, folks. Our people are the worst offenders, those outside of identity. Ongoing archaeological research demonstrates that numerous mummies, excuse me, let me get a swig of coffee here. It's too early for sangria. Normal-sized human beings are scattered all over western Mongolia, especially in the Xinjiang province of western China in the Tarim Basin. These mummies are the remains of so-called Caucasians. Thus, we have clear evidence that white people inhabited that area in ancient times. These would be the Sethites, folks. Exactly where Dr. Swift tells us we would find them. Some of these mummies are so well-preserved that their white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes are evident. Some of these mummies are dressed in plaid clothing. (laughs) They might have been Irish, too. A fact that those of Irish and Scottish descent might find interesting. Joseph's Coat of Many Colors. The book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 2 through 15, makes several references to the flood. Joshua distinctly and repeatedly refers to this flood as being local in nature. And so, uh, so does Josephus refer to it as being local in nature. So, uh, and as I have said in the past, the, the deluge was global. The rains were, were very much global and probably resulted from a collapse of the canopy. Uh, the earth was much more humid and 
the uh, air pressure was double what it is now. So you can see that large size mammals, much larger than we have today, and I'm not talking about dinosaurs. That was from the previous age before that. That one ended in 11,500 BC. And then we see the, uh, the icebergs and the glaciers receding from 11,500 BC because that was a major catastrophe precipitated by a comet. And this has all been confirmed by science now. They all, they used to resist what was called catastrophism. Now they call it mass extinction event. They avoid calling it a catastrophe because mainstream science has argued against it until just very recently. So the catastrophists have been vindicated. Thank you very much. And uh, the best source of information about Atlantis is Otto Muck's book, The Story of Atlantis. That should be available online for free. Read about that, and it gives you the archaeological and geological evidence that there was a highly advanced civilization previous to 11,500 B.C., and that the Earth has changed dramatically since that time. Noah's flood was later, and not nearly as massive as the previous catastrophe. So let's continue. Ignorant preachers teach that Negroes descended from Ham, a pure white son of Noah. But where did the Chinese come from? What about the Amerindians, the Tahitians, Eskimos, and Native Australians? If Noah's three sons mutated into different races, now here's what they're trying to tell us, folks. They mutated into different races, and then those races stopped mutating, <laughs> and then they, they bred pure from that point on. This is what they're trying to tell us. So somehow Ham mutated into a black guy. The black guy moved to Southern Africa and produced nothing but black people ever since. Duh. This violates all the principles of genetics. None of this happened. It's garbage. It's theological garbage. And, and the theory of evolution is just as bad because they rely on mutations to create their very species, various species. That doesn't happen either because there has never been one documented instance of a positive mutation ever. Not one. Yet everything they teach, which is nothing but lies about evolution, is that it had to be caused by mutations. And they know it's a, it's a crock. They ab absolutely know it's a crock. But we must be lied to in order to remain deluded. You must have a false idea of what the Bible really teaches in order for them to control you and keep you deluded. We're in the state of delusion. It's caused by the perfidious Jew. So, if Noah's three sons mutated into different races, how did they get from Mesopotamia to these far distant lands? How did they get to Australia? How did they get to Siberia? and to America, and to South America, and Africa. It's a, how'd they get there? Surely there'd be a trace of their migration. No, all we have a trace of is the Israelites migrating into Europe through the Caucasus Mountains. That's why we're called Caucasians. So there's no evidence of any of this 
fairy tale that the flood was global and all the races devolved from Noah and Naama. It's, it's just nothing but fairy tales. The Hebrew word Adam means to show blood in the face, that is, to be able to blush. This clearly indicates that the Adamites were pre-Israelite white people. To argue that blacks, orientals, and others evolved from Noah is to insist on a narrow interpretation of the Bible, which is both contradicted by other Bible teachings and unable to stand up to scientific criticism. It is, quite simply, nonsense, which sprang up during the Middle Ages, maybe sooner because it's found in the Talmud. The Jews have been teaching this in their literature for thousands of years. I should say 2,500 years, 2,150 years, because the religion of Judaism didn't come to take shape until the days of Herod. And the Pharisees are the ones who invented Judaism. It's no older than that. So the Talmud is only about 2,000 years old. It was actually not written down until 1000 AD, but their oral tradition, which is not scriptural, their oral tradition is a perversion of the scriptures. And that's where they teach this garbage that all the races devolved from Adam and Naama, his wife. So since he was perfect in his generations, why would Yahweh give him an imperfect wife? It doesn't make any sense at all. And all of the Records, you know, the coinage, the statues, everything proves that these were all white people. Mesopotamia was peopled by Indo-Aryans and Sethites, and now the descendants of Noah, Noahites. They were all white, every last one of them, unless they imported slaves from other countries, which the Assyrians did, and which the Sumerians, who were apparently a mixture of Kenites and Indo-Aryans that lived in that territory east east of the garden. Okay, the, the one point I brought up last night by uh, apparently a, a Hindu who was arguing with a two-seed line guy was that he suggested that Keturah was actually an Indo-Aryan. And that does make a lot of sense. Now, because she was white, because she was an Aryan, Abraham was uh, able to marry her, just as he was able to marry Hagar, who was an Egyptian woman. But she was a Hamite, a pure white Hamite. She might have also been a Shemite, but the Bible doesn't make this clear. Nor is Keturah's heritage absolutely clear in Scripture. But he would not marry outside of his race because that was forbidden. Neither did Moses. Moses did not marry outside of his race. He married a Midianite woman who was also a Shemite. So if you pay careful attention to what the Bible actually teaches, you can't get this stuff wrong. But there's so much myth by the Jews and by the Judeo-Christians surrounding the Bible that you have to sift through all this mythology and actually look at the record, and you'll find out that uh, Moses' wife was a white Midianite woman, a, a Shemite, in fact. Okay, so let's continue here. So, so since Adam needs to show blood in the face, 
we see there's only one race surviving today that has that ability, and that is what we call the Caucasian people. That includes, of course, Japhethites, who were white, and Hamites, who were white. Of the three groups, the Hamites probably did the most intermixing, and most of them have disappeared. But the Japhethites, who are primarily the Slavic people of, of Europe, and the Shemites, who are the other uh, white people of Europe, that's where we migrated to. And we migrated to Australia and America and uh, Canada and New Zealand and places like that. So that's where these descendants of Noah are to be found. Okay, so we have already traced the bloodline of Shem. If you are an Anglo-Saxon, Shem is your direct progenitor. If you are a Jew, the blood in your veins contains either zero genetic material from Shem, or you have some of his genetic material plus the genetic material of any number of other ethnic groups and races, primarily Kenites, Edomites. Since the Jews are not a pure race, but a breed of mixed blood, they cannot be Shemites. Their claim of being of Semitic descent is scripturally invalid, and the rabbis know it is. Let us also consider what happened to the brothers of Shem, Ham and Japheth, his Adamite, that is, Aryan brothers. Genesis 10 tells us that Japheth had seven sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Gomer, son of Japheth, had three sons, Ashkenaz, Riphah, and Togarma. Ashkenaz is the patriarch of the Ashkenazim. Now, the Ashkenazim were at one time pure white. At one time, pure white. It is quite conceivable that when our Caucasian ancestors, the the 12 tribes, the 10 lost tribes, plus a bunch of the House of Judah as well, migrated across the Caucasus Mountains. They passed through this territory. This is around 750 B.C., before, well, you know, well before any such creature as a, a Canaanite had wandered up there. So, if there was any interaction between the Ashkenazim and the Israelites in those days, and uh, the territory they most likely inhabited was southwest Russia and Ukraine. So these people were white at the time that our ancestors passed through. And so either there was uh, there were skirmishes with the Ashkenazim, who were white at that time, or there was some mixing, which is there's nothing wrong with that, because mixing of white brethren is no problem. It only affects the chain of descent of Israel. If you have, if your father is an Israelite and your mother is a Japhethite, you're an Israelite. That's the law. But if your father is a Japhethite and your mother is an Israelite, then you're not an Israelite. So you lose your status as one of the covenant people. Jews reckon their descent through the mother. We reckon our descent through the father. That should give you some indication that Judaism is not the biblical religion. Okay. So, so our ancestors, the 12 tribes of Israel, known as now the Caucasian people, 
wandered through and probably passed through, although some would have stayed. Some would have stayed, and those are probably known today as the Ukrainians. So, the Ashkenazim are still known. Now, now, what happened to the Ashkenazim was that there was the, the Mongol hordes swept over the territory, and the Hittites, who were living in Turkey, also wandered up there and mixed. And especially after 800 AD, when they adopted the religion called Judaism, the Ashkenazim were already mixed with Mongolian blood, and then they got mixed with Jewish blood through the Hittite genome. Okay, so this is what comprises the modern Ashkenazim, the Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews. So they have Hittite blood, Mongolian blood, and Japhetic blood. That is what an Ashkenazim is today. Now, these people are not Shemites. They were never Shemites. They never had one drop of Shemitic blood in them, nor do they have one drop of it today. The Ashkenazim converted to the religion of Judaism in the 8th century AD. This religious conversion did not provide them with Shemitic genes or Israelite genes. Today, 95% of the world's Jews are descended originally from Ashkenaz, not from the Canaanites, although these two bloodlines have mixed much through the last 1,200 years. So these Jews aren't even... Sephardic, you know, the Sephardic Jews at least lived near Israel, but they're descent from Edom. Those are Edomite Jews. So 95% are Ashkenazim, who have Mongolian and Hittite, therefore Canaanite blood. And the other 5% are the Sephardim, who are basically pure Edomites, with a lot of other blood mixed in. Javan had four sons, Elisha, Tarshish, Tarshish, was also the name of Spain in those days, Kittim and Dodanim. Note that many of the names given in these genealogies have survived into the 20th century, either as territorial names or as ethnic names or both. Verse 5 refers to these people as having divided amongst themselves the territories of the so-called Gentiles, that is, the pre-existing nations around them. So, but all of Mesopotamia was white. All the descendants of Noah were white. The Indo-Aryans were white. And whatever remnant there was of Atlanteans in northern Europe, they certainly had survived along the western coast of Europe where there were no glaciers. And Yahweh, went with the receding of the glaciers, created that wilderness for us to inhabit. That's why uh, Europe was a total wilderness, except for the coastlines. And the, there are many uh, populations, uh, even in Spain, that uh, reckon their descent from Atlantis. They have legends that they are descendants of Atlantis. And uh, also in Western Africa, the, the Berbers, white, the Berbers, white-skinned Berbers. So... If you actually look at the history of the world, you see the white race had a tremendous global civilization called Atlantis, and this was destroyed by the fallen ones, by Lucifer himself. The 
Anakim, the Anunnaki, descended to the earth, took over the earth, and destroyed that civilization. So we have in Genesis chapter 3 a member of the survivors of this Anunnaki, Nachash, seduced Eve and tried to prevent Yahweh's uh, creation of a pure white dominion. That's what Genesis 1 in verses 26, 27, and 28 is all about, the dominionism of the scriptures. So, in other words, the way they destroyed Atlantis, they decided, well, they have to do the same thing because they cannot allow Adam and Eve to create an immortal race that would overthrow them. That would overthrow them. Remember, Nachash said, you can, you can be like one of us. Apparently, Eve didn't realize that she was already greater than they were. And probably Adam didn't realize it either. Otherwise, they would not have fallen for all this trickery in the garden. And that's uh, all explained very succinctly in the previous episode, Enmity number five, which I encourage you to listen to in conjunction with this show. So let's continue. So, Uh, all of these genealogies of the white race still exist today. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mitzrayim, Fut, and Canaan. Mitzrayim is Egypt. That was uh, ruled by white people for thousands of years. Thousands of years. These were not blacks. Canaan, however, either had mixed blood, although it's not likely. I think it was just an incest. I'm not aware of any literature that suggests that Canaan was of mixed race. The sons of Cush, Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Rayama, and Sabteca. Sheba, oh, oh, it gets into it in the next paragraph. In the early history of the Adamites, intermarriage between the descendants of the sons of Noah was not prohibited as long as they were not of mixed blood. In other words, they could intermarry with white people and that whole area Mesopotamia was nothing but white people, with the exception of the Sumerians, who either imported black slaves, Dravidians from India, or they were Kenites. We're told that Cain went east so and, and built a city, which he named after his son Enoch. So the, the Sumerians were probably of mixed race. And all of the literature suggests that they were, and that the Akkadians were Indo-Aryans who moved in from India and defeated the Sumerians and took over that territory. So from, with Akkadian rule, it was again ruled by white people exclusively, although it was by that time a mixed population. So Cush begat, oh, well, let, me see, let me finish here about the Queen of Sheba. Hence, the Queen of Sheba was most likely a pure-blooded Adamite at that time. Only later did race mixing dilute the Adamic bloodline in Egypt, Ethiopia, and other areas where our people once ruled. Cush begat Nimrod, who was a mighty one in the earth, a powerful monarch. Now, uh, the information I, that I got received last night, which, if it, it's correct, that Nimrod had a Canaanite mother, and that's why he began teaching other religions, idol-worshiping religions, 
That is certainly a possibility. I had never heard that before. And that was from last night's Restoration Hour. I will post that and put it in the archives immediately after today's show. In his 10th chapter, we see the names of many of those nations and peoples which were to become Israel's enemies. Babel, Asher, that is Assyria, Philistim, Canaan, the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgasites, Hivites, etc. However, uh, the Philistines <coughs> were Hamites, but they were not Canaanites. So the relationship between Israel and the Philistines was different than to the Canaanites. Yahweh did not instruct the Israelites to exterminate the Philistines, even though they were Hamites, but they were not Canaanites. They were not of the accursed seed. Uh, the worst that Yahweh did was to, uh, he afflicted them with hemorrhoids on one occasion because they had stolen the ark. And uh, so, okay, leave my ark alone and give it back to the Israelites. And then their plague of hemorrhoids cleared up. But the Israelites were not instructed to exterminate the Philistines, which is proof that they were not Canaanites. It is important to realize that some of the descendants of Shem also became part of the peoples who eventually became known by the umbrella term Canaanites. One of these families is that of the Sephardim, presently the other major branch of Jewry, who apparently got their name from the area of the mountain named Safar. These people were Shemites, but not Israelites. But of course, they mixed their blood with the Canaanites. They cannot even be considered Abrahamites in spite of the fact that they make this claim because the Sephardites, Sephardim, are only cousins of Abraham, not his descendants. Of course, today, the entire class of Middle Eastern non-Ashkenazi Jews is referred to as the Sephardim. W.G. Finlay, in issue number 10 of the Covenant Answering Service, sums it up this way. A Jew, whether Sephardic or Ashkenazic, cannot from evidence to hand be called an Israelite. This term in scriptural definition identifying one who is descended from Jacob Israel and none other. So, it's all about bloodlines. It's all about pure lines of descent. And the Jews don't have a pure line of descent. They are a mixed bag. They are a motley crew of every race under the sun, but primarily Edomite. Recall the foregoing syllogism. All Israelites are Shemites, but not all Shemites are Israelites. Indeed, the Israelites comprised only a portion of the descendants of Shem, but without a doubt, the Israelites are the covenant people upon whom the blessings were bestowed. The other Shemites either intermarried with the surrounding Canaanites, or perhaps kept to themselves, but still have no part in the covenant bestowed to Jacob Israel. And this includes the Japhethites as well. Not all white people are covenant people. We thus begin to see the genealogical nature of the Canaanites, the historical and racial ancestors of the people today known as Sephardic Jews. Jacob's brother Esau married two Canaanite women, and thus violated the laws against intermarriage. By this act, he repudiated his share of the covenant, which he would have had had he not sold his birthright to Jacob, and had he not intermarried with Hittites. 
Genesis 25:34 says, quote, "Thus Esau despised his birthright." Despised his birthright. Oh yeah, and uh, Swamp Fox says, "In my humble opinion, Azanath was of Enoch. Azanath was the woman who uh, married by Joseph, Joseph of the twelve tribes." Yes, she was of the Enoch bloodline. Yeah, because uh, Enoch had set up a priesthood in Egypt. Oh, I forget which city it was. Uh, called the City of the Sun. And uh, that was an Enoch bloodline established in that city in Egypt. And they were separate and distinct from the Hamites. But a uh, very good point, uh, Swamp Fox. Thank you. And this was the priesthood of An. This is reported. Uh, Dr. Wesley Swift did uh, several lectures on this subject but uh, we'll see if we can find those lectures and put them up on Eurofolk Radio okay so Esau despised his birthright even though Esau was a white man he despised his birthright he thought hunting and marauding was more fun Birthright is Strong's word number 1062, meaning primogeniture, or the right of the firstborn. The firstborn would always get the double inheritance. And uh, Brother Aber is in the process of composing a document on the priesthood of Melchizedek, properly Melchizedek, because it's two Hebrew words, the priesthood of Melchizedek, and of course, Yahshua is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, which is limited exclusively to the Israelite genome, or the Adamic genome, because Adam was the first high priest of Melchizedek. And uh, he goes into a detail uh, tracing the son of the it's the priesthood of the elder son because every elder son was supposed to be the high priest of his family or the priest of the family. And then the reigning high priest of all the families was called the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And so Brother Aber goes into detail about that, tracing the various, the order, the order of the high priesthood through the scriptures. And in fact, David was a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And he was apparently appointed by Yahweh, even though he was a younger son, he was appointed by Yahweh because one of the ways a uh, high priesthood can be lost is if you are a fornicator or you disqualify yourself by committing some evil act against your brethren. And so that is also documented in the Old Testament. So essentially, it's the high priesthood established from Adam down toward Abraham. And uh, there are still, in my opinion, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of us, a lot of our males are priests priests of that order, but we simply lost trace of who they are. But that priesthood will be reestablished at the second coming. Totally reestablished. In fact, Paul says it was reestablished at the first coming. We just don't have a genealogical descent of all these first sons who qualify. The essence of this 
what I'm teaching here is that the extent to which, which these Hamites, Japhethites, and non-Israelite Shemites intermarried with the Chaldeans, the Sumerians, and others is not so important as the fact that whether they intermarried or not, they have no claim to the Abrahamic covenant, which is devolves totally upon Isaac and then Jacob, his four wives, the Adelphos, that's referred to in the New Testament, of the same womb. So the, the initial womb of the Abrahamic covenant is that of Sarah. Harken back on to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, your mother. That's what we do. We're the only people in the world that do that because we're following biblical instruction, which is a good indication that we are those people. And Isaac, who was dedicated on the altar as Abraham prepared to sacrifice his son, but he was stopped by an angel, and the uh, the the animal in the thicket carried uh, the sins away. So Isaac, not only Isaac, but his descendants, because we were in his loins at that time, he married Rebekah, and her womb, the Adelphos, picks up the covenant, and then Jacob's four wives, their wombs pick up the covenant. So we have to have a very specific father and a very specific mother to be considered the covenant people. The blessing given to Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation. Hebrew goy, <laughs> it doesn't say I will make of thee a great Gentile. That would be ridiculous. But the translators of the KJV were this frivolous in their use of the word Gentile. It's ridiculous. So that, uh, you know, the word Gentile simply does not belong in the Bible anywhere. So this applies only to his direct descendants through his wife, Sarah, and through Isaac and Rebekah. And both Sarah and Rebekah were blessed by Yahweh with the same blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that many people would come from their wombs. Uh, of course, only their direct descendants. And this logically excludes both the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. The fact that they might be near or distant cousins is not good enough. The serpent seed Jews use the word goy deceitfully to mean non-Jew. The scripture never uses the word in this way. The word Jew was not even a part of our language until the 1500s AD. And the people known today as Jews did not even come into being until 150 BC. These people originated as half-breed Judeans, not pure-blooded Judahites. In addition to these non-Israelite or Sephardic Canaanites, the other descendants of Esau Edom must be figured. Genesis chapter 36 tells us how Esau settled in the land of Canaan and dwelt at Mount Seir. Esau Edom had two sons, Eliphaz and Ruel, quoting Genesis 36:11, And the sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam, and Kenaz. By a concubine, Eliphaz had Amalek, who was considered the most evil of all of the Canaanites. 
the Amalekites were to become the fiercest enemies of Israel. So now you see that when Esau moved in among the Canaanites, this is where the Edomites or the Jews originated. And there has been constant strife between these two bloodlines as recorded in the scriptures unto this point in time. You should be aware that the Jews admit their Canaanite heritage. Quote, Edom is in modern Jewry. Unquote, Jewish Encyclopedia, 1925, volume 5, page 41. And it is demonstrated by scripture that Israel's leaders and prophets endeavored at all times to keep Israel distinct from the Canaanites. In fact, we were ordered to exterminate them, but we failed to do the job. Esau married into the Canaanites. We thus have conclusive scriptural proof that the Jews, who are obviously not white, are not Israelites. They are descended from the Canaanites and Edomites. And the history of Judea just before the time of Christ shows that the Idumean tribe of these Canaanites surreptitiously overcame the tribe of Judah when Antipater, through, through his behind-the-scenes deals with Rome, wrested civil and religious power from Hyrcanus, the last true Judahite, I believe it's Hyrcanus three, the last true Judahite to rule over Judah, and that only for a very short time. Antipater's Idumean son was Herod the Great, the very same viper who committed mass infanticide of Israelites in an attempt to murder Jesus. Herod went so far as to destroy the genealogical records of the house of Judah because he knew he could not demonstrate his Judahite heritage. He was an Edomite Jew, but not a Judahite. With that beginning, the great impersonation of Israel by Canaanite, Edomite, Ashkenaz Jews developed into what it is today. With Zionism trying to force its terrible and ignoble will upon the innocent peoples of the world and deceiving the Christian world into believing that they, the Jews, are quote-unquote God's chosen people. One of the principal excuses Zionism gives in its gigantic charade and illegal occupation of Palestine is that the Jews are the supposed descendants of Israel. Their claim to Palestine is genetic, folks. It's genetic. But they were not Judah. They were not Israel. They were Edom. Well, they had control of Palestine in those days under Herod. That is the genetic claim they have to Palestine. But it didn't belong to them. They occupied it thanks to Roman power. And they occupy it today thanks to British power and, their, and Zionism. That does not make them Israelites. They never were and never will be Israelites. Their brashness is confirmed in Isaiah 4.9. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. Aren't they the leaders of the homosexual movement in the earth today? Transgenderism, uh, genetic manipulation of our food, race mixing. They're the authors of all this stuff in the world today. They are not Israelites. They are the worst enemies of Israel in the world today and always have been. Woe unto their soul, 
for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. They're going to get their just desserts at the second coming. Reverend Bertrand L. Compare in his book, The Good Figs and the Bad Figs, has this to say regarding the show of the Jewish countenance. Quote, All the ancient monuments show Israelites having a straight-nosed, typically Anglo-Saxon face. And the monuments which show the Canaanites from the Hittites in the north, way up into Turkey, on down through the various Canaanite peoples living in Palestine, they all show hook-nosed, typically Jewish faces. Now, of course, the Ashkenazim, as I said earlier, began as Japhethites, and then mixed with Mongol blood and then Hittite blood, that is Canaanite blood. So a lot of these Ashkenazim look white because they may have more white blood than the other genomes. But these people are just as evil and probably even more evil because they, they have the intelligence of white people, but the guilefulness, the cunning of Cain, the cunning of Nahash. And, uh, and they have actually mistreated the Sephardic Jews throughout their stay in Palestine. So they're even more evil than the Sephardic Jews. This hook-nosed, receding forehead type of countenance goes all the way back to the Sumerians, who were the first people to be ruled by Cain. This facial type is still dominant within Jewry today, although the Ashkenazim, because of frequent intermarriage with the white race and their Japhetic origin, it's harder to trace in them. For a simple demonstration, compare the profiles of Grace Kelly, a Shemite, and Barbara Streisand, a Sephardic Jew. Neither do they hide their sins. Anti-white and anti-Christian causes, such as abortion, secular humanism, Judeo-Christianity in the churches, Freemasonry, homosexuality, and the list goes on forever, are all openly and vigorously pursued and publicly promoted by various representatives of Jewry in total defiance of the Mosaic Law. It is only the blind and thoroughly indoctrinated who either cannot see this or refuse to see it. But of course, this is nothing but the fulfillment of the prophecy that Satan would deceive the whole world. And he has done a damn good job of deceiving the whole world. Thankfully, Yahweh has always provided a remnant of covenant Israelites of the seed of Adam, the pure seed of Adam, down through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Caucasian people. We are those covenant people and no one else. And we're the only ones teaching this stuff. We're the only ones teaching about the genealogical heritage demonstrated in the Bible. The Jews are the ones trying to deny it and overthrow it. Revelation 12.9, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So, how long ago did this happen? I believe it happened before Genesis 1.2. Because it, told, it tells us there that the earth had become void. 
which means it wasn't void before that. And we're also told that the earth had to be replenished, not plenished. This was a replenishment. This is talking about the catastrophe of 11,500 B.C., the mass extinction event that is now finally recognized by mainstream science, geology, and archaeology. Thank you very much. But we've been teaching this in identity for over 100 years. The fundamentalists will try to tell you that this is a reference to the papacy and the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church wasn't around yet, folks. <laughs> wasn't around yet. They're just a continuation of false teaching. But this deceiver was present in the Garden of Eden. The papacy didn't exist until after 300 A.D. And the first pope wasn't so-called until 607 A.D. So the papacy is really a kind of a newcomer compared to the devil, right? The papacy is only part of his empire. It is obvious that the world, thanks to the internet, is waking up to Jewish treachery. Because of Jewish lobbying, virtually all governments in the world, with the exception of the United States and Muslim countries, have made criticism of Jews illegal. Boy, they are trying so hard to make it illegal. This was composed in 2005. They still haven't succeeded in making criticism of Jews illegal. They will accuse you of hate speech, but they can't arrest you and, and per persecute you or put you in jail for criticizing the Jews. They can't do that yet. And in the name of Yahweh and Yahshua, they will not succeed in doing it. They're going to try. They're going to try their best. But we are going to fight back. Anybody who doesn't fight back against this trend of the Jews to prevent criticism of Jews and, of course, the, uh, the Noahide laws are an attempt to do that, too, where they claim, the Jews claim to have the right to behead any idolater. What's an idolater? Well, Christians are idolaters because they believe in supposedly two gods, God the Father and God the Son. Therefore, we are automatically idolaters, according to the Jews, according to their Noahide laws, which do not exist in Scripture, but do exist in their Talmud. I hope you're getting the picture that they want to exterminate you. Maybe they want to get even with the Israelites of old, or Yahweh himself, because he's the one who ordered us to exterminate them. But we failed to do the job. Numbers 33.55 If you do not exterminate them as I have instructed you to do, they will come back to be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side. Boy, I've got wounds all over. They've pricked our eyes to the point where we cannot see and their thorns in our sides distract us from reality. Swamp Fox uh, interjects here, Ephesians 4.14, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. A major portion of the Holy Scriptures is devoted to warnings given to us by Yahshua and other prophets 
especially Paul, that there are deceivers in the world who are trying to take away our inheritance, our covenant relationship with Yahweh, to trick us and deceive us. They have snuck in unawares to us. They have snuck in pretending to be Christian, pretending to be white, pretending to be this and that. But they are deceivers. You have to be on guard because they will come calling and they will pretend to be patriots. They will pretend to be constitutionalists. They will pretend to be white. They will pretend to be Israelites. Don't believe it. By their fruits shall ye know them, and they will eventually show their fruits and prove to you that they are not Israelites. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you next time.